0: But I guarantee that's going to take up a fair amount of space.
1: Well, sure, but, you know, I can't guarantee that it will.
0: <laughs> that's what I just guaranteed. That's what I just guaranteed.
1: Your guarantee is null and void. Yeah, there's, uh, there's some... There's a weird spin off here, which is that somebody named a new species for a population of cells derived from a person in the 1950s, mm. and, and this bunch of cells, which have obviously only been in Petri dishes...
0: We're doing the podcast now. Are we? No, but we're starting, so we should do the podcast.
1: All right. <laughs> I need to know... I can't I need to know the name of it, because it's got a binomial name, and some people regard it as a complete joke the idea mm. that you give a, a, a binomial to a set of cells. Another and, and, on, on the other hand, it's like, well, it's evolved and it's distinct from its blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yes. Well, this is, what well, is this, episode 43? Yeah. Got to get it right.
0: You don't, okay. you don't actually. It'd be a lot funnier if you get it wrong.
1: I, but I normally get it wrong, and that just makes me look stupid because I can't count.
0: Do you? I don't think you ever got it wrong, have you?
1: Oh okay, right. Let's go then. Okay,
0: <laughs> that was purely by coincidence.
1: <laughs> right, are we going then?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, let's go. Okay. Okay. Welcome to. Hello, and welcome to episode. Start again. Forty six. Okay. Hello. Here right. we go. Right. So just you know, come on. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to episode. Forty-three of the world famous Tedge Pods Waldy podcasts, Podcasts, Darren, Podcasts. Podcasts. Uh who are you?
0: Um I don't know. Okay. well, this I, always I not- takes me by surprise, doesn't it? It's funny. Well, it you, you say who are you? and I always pause and think, I don't know.
1: You can even say your actual name, you you
0: mm, I could, but that would be boring. Okay, so it's better to pause for a long time and then say, "I don't know because I can't think of something funny enough.
1: Who are you I, I-, I am Anungun Rama, mm. which will mean something to some people anyway, is right that Stargate?
0: so what is that Stargate?
1: No, it's Hellboy. Mm. It's his real name. I've just noticed that you, for the previous episode, you've written Age of Voltron at the bottom of the show notes. Thanks for that. Yep. Um, So we're kind of, of like previous episode, we uh, experimented with uh, a lack of format, and uh, I personally think it didn't work that badly. I think it sounded okay. And there was some fairly serious stuff, and it was interspersed with some less serious stuff, but it seemed to be fairly well balanced. So we're going to kind of carry on a little bit in that vain although yeah. we have also just drawn up an agenda yeah which so <laughs> so we're also kind of not and uh, yeah. um yeah okay
0: so let's just let's just go into it then so if you romanian fox oh you just it away the whole thing <gasps> well, you shouldn't have written that down then <laughs> you. this is the problem with an agenda
1: sorry Okay, what or happened last it out. time it out. Can censor that bit, censor that. Um what happened last time is I spoke about uh returning from field work in Romania and I said that that while we were in Romania, myself and my colleagues, University of Southampton people, we found something and we were like, Oh my god, this one's gonna rewrite the history books It's a real big deal. And it turned out not to be so. And due to pressure on uh Facebook, um, a couple of people uh uh, Richard Nicklin, I think, was, a, was among. Um, a couple of people have said, you know, oh, come on, spill the beans, tell us a little bit more about it. So uh, I have permission to share a bit more of this fascinating story. Uh, as I mentioned, at a location in Romania called Răpăroși uh, some of us, a small group of us, uh, rappelled down a cliff side to find Cretaceous fossils, and an amazing thing was discovered. The com- near-complete skull of, a, of a, an intact skull of a Mesozoic mammal was discovered in situ. And um, and this was immediately kind of, you know, shared among a group. This is a big deal, finding a, a complete mammal skull. And furthermore, uh, it could be identified on the basis of his teeth what kind of mammal it was. It was a tribosphenic mammal, a member of the group that includes marsupials, placentals. And, um, wow, it's an and A photograph was taken of it in situ. It was big. Is a, a big uh, animal with a skull, like about the length of the whole of your hand. Well, we know of a couple of mammals from the Cretaceous that are that kind of size. mammas from China is the most the best known one, known to have occasionally eaten dinosaurs. So, oh my God, have we got a giant, you know, badger-sized, fox-sized Cretaceous mammal living in the Hatzeg Island Romanian fauna. Otherwise, you know, an island fauna dominated by dwarf dinosaurs, blah, blah, blah. blah. Oh my God! This changes everything. Nature paper. We're gonna get <laughs> new species, and uh, yeah, there was much like. Everyone, this is the thing we we're talking about for a couple of days, and because it was discovered in situ on the side of a cliff, sort of thirty meters off the ground, the uh, basically the 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 job of excavating it and and uh, uh, making sure it was what you call it, you know, like bundling up in the field, um, was done. Hurriedly, and you, you you quickly plaster these things up. Uh, Ellis Newham was the the, the main guy here uh, the, who found it, and um, uh, he was with Luke Musker and uh, um, a couple of other of our p- people. And um, yeah, so they, they packaged it up, and obviously couldn't really look at it until it's like prepared in a lab. But uh, yeah, it turned out to be, yes, it was a fox-sized mammal, <laughs> but it wasn't a fossil one. And, um, uh, you know, this kind of thing happens all the time. You, f- you At places where you're looking for fossil bones, you'll find the bones of, you know, you're often in fairly wild, remote places, you know, cliff sides, or whatever, you find the bones of living animals, which sometimes get incorporated into sediment and sometimes look really similar to the fossils. And uh, you can tell they're not fossils if you break them apart or hit them or whatever, but, you know, yeah. uh, if you're if you're dangling from a rope 30 metres off the ground and you have to be very careful in terms of, you know, what you're doing. But they, only, they only took one photo of the thing in situ and then, as I say, quickly had to wrap it up in plaster. Um, so you haven't said th- what it is yet. Oh, it's a fox. Yes. Yeah, it turned out to be a modern-day fox skull which had, like, gotten wedged in scree sediment and um you know then sort of incorporated got new stuff had fallen on top of it it looked like an in-situ fossil it looked like a giant mammal skull from the cretaceous so but no it was not to be so it was a modern day a modern day thing not a fossil at all yeah. and nobody should you know nobody should feel so- silly here i've already said to Alice, don't worry about it i'm not going to make you look like a silly person because um you know these things happen and and there's we found out while we were there on the trip, that oh, it's not a fossil after all, it's a modern day thing, so it's not like we uh made a big deal out of it or published. If we'd published on it, then that would have been a different story. And there are cases where that has happened, there are some fascinating cases where people have published things that oh my god, a modern day lizard in the Triassic, yeah, it's a modern day lizard that fell down a crack into the Triassic sediments, so that has happened, yes. Uh, It's that's happened. There's there's a lizard from India which is based on a beautiful lower jaw, and uh, was said by its describers to be really significant because it pulls loads and loads of events in lizard evolution way down deep into the Mesozoic. But no, it is actually a modern day lizard jaw that fell through a fissure into Triassic sediments. It's also said that bits of Protoavis Sankar Chatterjee's famous alleged Triassic bird. It's been said that some of those might be modern day bits that have fallen down fissures into. Mm. uh, ancient sediment so this is something people have in mind and there's various tests that you can run to obviously get around it but uh yeah
0: yeah also when you're expecting you, you know your mind's attuned to finding fossil animals it's yeah. and you're not thinking about modern animals a lot of the time you're not thinking <laughs> so when you see something like that you're not pattern matching it to living animals a lot of the time mm. you're in a different sort of mode so
1: and especially when it's literally stuck in sediment.
0: Yeah, stuck in sediment, exactly.
1: And and at this site as well, the, the, the fossil bones, the Cretaceous bones at this site are white. Mm. They look like modern bones. Mm-hmm. So now I'd been on, on this particular I have found fossils at Rapparosi. On this particular occasion I didn't, but um, I did find modern day bones. I found bones of, of passerine birds. Like they weren't in they weren't incorporated into sediment, but so I was looking around, thinking of modern-day bones. But whether you know, if I'd seen this thing sticking out at the side of a cliff, whether I would have—I'm sure—I would have thought it was a fossil, assumed it was a fossil as well. So, so yeah, you live and learn. These things happen. So, so that's the story of the Romanian giant uh, mammal that never was. And so, so people well, again.
0: Well, no, let's let's be clear. It, it was. It, it is, or it was. It's an X fox now. <laughs>
1: So anybody that saw on on Facebook uh, while I was in Romania this message, I can't remember what I said. I said I'm like, "Oh my God! Incredibly significant discovery for Romania. It's going to change everything." I'd put in a little bit of hyperbole because it's Facebook. You know who cares? But um, yeah, that's that's where that's what that was. But
0: um, <laughs> okay, so yes. Mm.
1: Yeah, of course, there is, uh, I am busy working on Romanian stuff, of course, as always, as things in the pipeline. But not so oh, no.
0: world-changing as a fox from the Cretaceous.
1: Not a, f- a fox-sized mammal. Bear in mind, we didn't literally think it was a fox. We thought it was a, a fox-sized <laughs> or badger-sized uh mammal from the Mustrichtian. <laughs> Which would have been a big deal. But uh, we do have a lot of mammals at the site at, at, in our Romanian locations. But they're multi which I know you love. So, um, yep. Yeah. So that was part of that, That's kind of follow up. But there was some other follow up, wasn't there? So um, yes,
0: <clears throat> uh, it's a bit long. Mike Casey has. Followed up on the discussion of clades and paraphyllia and monophyly and this sort of oh, stuff.
1: Drinking game is in effect, by the way. Drinking Yeah. Game. Okay. Um, Keys eat Drink, drink, drink. Ooh. Sorry, carry on.
0: Now, I should have thought about this a bit longer before I just started to talk about it. So let's come back to it, actually. Let's come back to it. <laughs> well done,
1: well let's done. Let's move
0: on to news from the world of Darren and John.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, um, Hello? yeah, well, I can't, I can't remember what we said we we're going to talk about apart from this, uh, well, well, cause there's the, 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 the thing with wings that we'll talk about in a moment. That's
0: news from the world of news, Darren. Yeah, yeah but,
1: it, but, yeah, but you, because you painted it. So also there's a crossover there as well. You see yeah. this thing, um, well, well, this The first thing I was thinking of is also crossover because, okay, what I'm ge- all over the place. What I'm getting at here is a new paper appeared about two weeks ago or a week ago. We're talking, what is it? This is the 21st of May today. Um, Bar Anjar Bular at, I believe, Yale University and a bunch of colleagues. They uh, have... I was going to say published straight away, but I don't know if it's technically out yet. I think it's like pre-printed, which is kind of half-published, but whatever. They've released the results of their research on the um, Evo Devo of bird snouts. And uh, basically, okay, so... So modern birds have got a uh, long single unit forming much of the upper jaw, forming basically the whole of the beak section of the skull. It's formed by two bones that are joined together, the premaxillary bones forming a single unit called the premaxilla. And um, this is kind of a morphological innovation. It seems to be quite an important thing in bird evolution. And it makes makes modern birds different in cranial anatomy from earlier kinds of birds and other kinds of theropods. And Bart Angel Bullard and colleagues, they showed that there's a small set of genes that control the development of this structure. And that if you switch those genes off in living birds, and they did this with chicken embryos, then you get chicken embryos with obviously unpaired sort of bluntly rounded premaxillae, So they have a snout that looks a lot more like that of kind of a non-bird theropod or even a non-dinosaur in archosaur, because they compare it to like crocodile embryos, don't they? Mm. But what was really interesting is that what's linked to this shift in uh, uh, snout anatomy is the shape of the palatal bones change as well. And those of you who know bird anatomy will know there's this like um, distinct change in palatal anatomy uh, once you get closer to modern birds in the family tree. So by switching off a couple of genes, tinkering with a couple of genes in bird snouts, they actually produced embryo chickens that have, like, air quotes, dinosaur snouts. So they made dinosaur-snouted chickens. Uh, these would let all embryos, we're not talking about chickens running around, but we're not talking about jackhorn and chickensaurus things, although, of course, funnily enough, One it step does... step on the way. <laughs> <laughs> it does tie in with that. And, of course, you're involved... Because um, you were obviously contacted at some point and uh, commissioned to produce some sexy artwork, which you did, which is all over the internet.
0: Yes, I did. And uh, apparently so, yes. I, <laughs> as people might have noticed, I've been taking a bit of a break from the internet. Really? Well, I've been reading things, but I haven't been posting so much.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. I've noticed you're not on Twitter and stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've just sort of just taken a bit of a break. Don't know why. I
1: I thought it's just because you're very, very lazy. Yeah. Uh, it's an to of your hand injury.
0: Well, typing is a pain. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shut me up a little bit.
1: <laughs> I'm going to tell people why you damage your hand. John damaged his hand because he was uh, very clumsy. And
0: uh... well, like many many people, occasionally I need to visit. To uh the little Party. boys room. Um and uh in the middle of the night <laughs> and I and I <laughs> fell over on the way back. And I uh I broke one finger and ripped the ligaments uh Yikes. under the joints of three three of them. So that's this is my left hand, not my right hand.
1: And you're right handed.
0: I am right handed. And um I thought that it wouldn't be too bad given that, you know, I paint with my right hand. But yeah, turns out painting for me involves a lot of. Well, everyone that knows uses has used Photoshop or whatever knows that you use keyboard shortcuts. You know, you zooming in, panning, changing tools, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that's a real pain in the neck. And um, yeah, typing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not a touch typist, so it doesn't make as much of a difference as you think. Um, but. It's still annoying.
1: When people say when when people say I'm not a touch typist, does that mean you can't you have to look at the keyboard when you type? Or yeah. You, you, yeah. And
0: I don't so, use the right fingers. I use random fingers.
1: Oh, I can I can like look out the window and type yeah. with like ninety five percent accuracy. So that's not touch typing. That's like
0: well, it's bad touch typing because it's only ninety five percent.
1: Well, maybe maybe it's ninety nine percent. I don't know, but that's. But even when I'm looking at the keyboards, listen, watch this. I'll do something.
0: See? Yeah, but I can't see that what you're typing. You could just <laughs> be random keys. <laughs>
1: do you know what? I was yeah. <laughs> um, liar. So so well done on your your involvement in the that, uh, momentous thing. And now, coincidentally, at the same time as this paper on uh, dinosaurs, sorry. Uh, chickens with dinosaur snouts which of course is a bit of an oxymoron given that chicken is dinosaur anyway, but you know what I mean at the same time as that paper was published um, there was another one, which I'm trying to find right now and failing to find uh, Botello et al. Skeletal plasticity in perching digit of birds and this was in Nature Scientific Reports Uh, Botello and colleagues And uh, they did some neat work on the hallux, which is digit one, the the digit on the inside of the foot of uh, birds. And as is well known, again, if you know dinosaurs, including birds, you'll know that the hallux uh, opposes the other digits in the bird foot. Um, And this is partly because the metatarsal that the hallux is attached to is like rotated Mm. on the metatarsus which is different from the condition in early birds and non-bird theropods. But um, again, genetic tinkering with chicken embryos, they managed to get chickens to, that, that don't have this um, uh, twisted uh, first metatarsal and so have, uh, I'm sure this is a gross simplification, I'm just skimming the paper here, which I haven't really read, but um, they basically managed to get chickens with like an untwisted, a non-reverted hallux and therefore, a kind of foot more like that of a an early bird, uh, like an Archaeopteryx-style bird, or a non-bird theropod. So, ooh, it's really getting—you know—you chuckle. Some someone is going to chuckle these things together and produce little chickens that yeah. have got, in air quotes, dinosaur faces and dinosaur feet and and obviously tails. And
0: do you think it would be fair to say from this research that what appear to be relatively complex um morphological changes are in many ways genetically simpler than we thought, and therefore the genetically genetic changes required to get to um the more bird like condition are not as large as you might expect
1: I do think that's true i think I think part of it is that people now understand better the fact that the anatomical conditions that are present in embryos. Are well, people now know how you know exactly how to go about deactivating, reactivating, whatever things. I think that's now like fairly, a fairly standard bit of genetic, uh, yeah, tinkering. Um, and yes, things that seem to be quite profound changes are not really profound at all once you know how to, you know, what to do yeah um i i feel like I should say something far more intelligent than that. but, <laughs> but uh, i and I did want to but uh, no I can't find the words uh so
0: yeah, yeah. um it, it is a sort of interesting to think about what sort of genetic differences there might be between apparently wildly morphologically different um prehistoric animals. Yeah, and like mm. take dinosaurs for example, how different is a, um, a sauropod from a ceratopsian, for example? You know.
1: Well. Um, interesting thing because we tend to think of let's say the difference between like let's say uh, the chicken snout relative to like the Archaeopteryx snout, you know, anatomically we see we see like say you know let's say fifteen differences and we think well therefore you've got to have like these numerous steps but what this is showing us is that you know that change can be made in like one step that basically an evolutionary saltation. So we know of other cases, for example, where you know due to some one particular you know genetic change. There are, there, there's, there are quadrupedal humans. There are people that like, are forced to walk quadrupedally on the palms of their hands. Um, and again, that's just like one, one thing. That's something you'd think, whereas you think of the difference between quadrupedal and bipedal primates. You think that's quite profound, loads <clears throat> of changes involved. Um, yes, I, I think it kind of helps. It, it provides some support for the idea that um, saltation is maybe like a, a regular and easy, in quotes, thing, in evolutionary history, and also that th- yeah, conditions that we think of as distinct are really not.
0: Yeah, they're very. Uh, and so, this is an interesting point for um, cladistics as well. Morphological cladistics, where say the snout that that palate and snout complex would probably be scored with yeah fifteen different characters. Right, it'd be a fairly major chunk of the um, characters holding clades together, um, and. Well, maybe it's only one or two characters. Really, you know, it's uh, well. uh, I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying that because it's 15 (laughs) characters. I understand that, but they're they're all super linked. But we don't know whether how linked other characters are, and this is one of the things that I think will be interesting to see whether we can do this in the future with morphological cladistics in taking guesses at what what are genetically linked complexes. Um, Mm. and what what are important changes. So weighting the um, characters based on this. Um, I mean, it it seems like, in some ways, the next step, but in other ways that weakens cladistics because cladistics works on basically statistical sampling and once you start to fiddle with it too much, then you can make Mm. it say whatever you want. Mm. Um, So... Yes,
1: I don't... yeah, no, no, no. I think I'd like to. I'd like to have some more intelli- again, intelligent things to say before I say any anything further on that. But um, it was anyway. The, the fact that these studies came out was good timing for me because I was giving a talk. Funny enough, for the RSPB, the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, for the few people that won't know, the Central London branch, are giving a talk on everything about, um, uh, well birds within the context of dinosaur evolution in general, which means I talk about the evolution and diversity of non-bird theropods, then the evolution of avian characters, then diversity of early birds and bird-like theropods and of course that, that paper the Bull Arata one that had just come out and uh, meant I got to obviously show your artwork as well mm. so um, yeah and then of course now this is where I think unless we have a, that was kind of semi- uh, we've done follow up, haven't we? That was like world from the, news from the world of Darren and Johnish. Yeah, but but then th- this sort of segs into news from the world <laughs> of news. Our next section because because um, I didn't talk about the flappy little dinosaur thing, which of course you've also illustrated. So yes. so this is this new Chinese dinosaur. Uh, there's an article about it on Tetra Zoology, so I don't need to go into all the details. It's written Yi Kui, but they explain in the paper that they that it should be pronounced E ki I believe. I think that's right, E ki Which, okay, this is where we come back to what we were saying about pronunciation. Mm. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, I get that. I get that. Like that. Uh, letters in other languages don 't sound the same as they do in the english language, but if it 's written if it 's written y i q i, then to Eng- to english speaking people that is pronounced y yep but uh, even though they say it there
0: is no y in Chinese so um, <laughs> well Chinese characters. I'm just going to say Kui, because I think that's how most people will say it, and it's how it's written, and there's less confusion that way.
1: I think they deliberately came up with this name to get the shortest possible, di- certainly the shortest dinosaur name. This is the, ho- that's ah, the whole. Ah, but it is name.
0: also quite appropriate, isn't it?
1: Doesn't it mean uh, strange wing. It might do. You know, yeah, I can't I remember. It does
0: mean strange wing, so I think they did. It is quite an appropriate name too.
1: Yeah. So this, this dinosaur is crazy weird. It's a, it's a member of a, group, a poorly known group of theropods, very small animals, about the size of, like, smaller than a pigeon. It's a member of a group called the Scansoriopterygids which um, I haven't been known for very long. I've only been known since, oh, I don't know, whenever Epidendrosaurus was published, I think 2003-ish.
0: Yeah, I think so, yeah.
1: Um, and um yeah they 're little they 're sort of somewhere close to birds within manpterons, and they 've got a very strange hand where the third finger is the longest one and When these animals were first published, uh, a few people paleo artists and others were sort of su- suggesting that maybe this the third finger was for like sticking into tree holes and pulling out grubs of you know like a, analogous to an i i um, but then uh one called Epidec- Epidepshipteryx was named. They, and, they all
0: have really difficult names, don't they? Uh,
1: so Epidendrosaurus and Scansoriopteryx and Epidendrosaurus seems to be preferred as the synonym of Scansoriopteryx. Then there's Epidepshipteryx. <laughs> then E. Key. Then there's this other one, juornis from the Cretaceous. I've forgotten its name. Yeah. Uh, um... Yeah, because these are Jurassic animals. Um, and, um, uh, Sorry, I forgot well, Yeah. So the the finger,
0: yep. It's not, not used as an eye-eye poking device. Yes.
1: Yeah. There's so much like integument, like sort of fuzz and stuff preserved associated with this third finger that even when Ebidex Shipdricks was published it looked likely that there was some kind of incorporation of the finger into some kind of wing which was assumed, you know, generally assumed that it's a a fuzzy or feathery wing and and by wing I don't necessarily mean the thing that's flapping, you know, maybe it's gliding or whatever. But um, this new one, E. Ki, ye, chi, ye, uh, yeah, that's a new one. Yikui. Um, Yikui um, ha, preserves, Seems to preserve a skin membrane in association with this long finger and also has an accessory element, a long bony rod, uh, which seems to have been used in support of uh, a wing membrane. So these animals are apparently membranous gliding Manoraptor and pteropods. And there's a whole bunch of interesting things to say here. I, I i've said pretty much all of it on touchbots already so go and check touchbots already article if you're interested the there's a there's a person out there who's claimed that it's a, a mistake and that they've actually just confused one of the lower arm bones well that's categorically incorrect they were very careful uh over this and checked and checked and checked again i totally trust the people that look at the fossils instead of people who, you know, look at pictures on computer screens. Um, it's also not of the same uh, uh, microstructure as uh, the the lower arm bones. Then there's the fact that, yeah, if it's got membranes, well, um, we already know that birds and some other manraptrons had membranes of a sort. We spoke about this you know, a couple of episodes ago, although I can't remember how we actually resolved it, but we did talk about this um that the, the birds have got membranes but they're not tr- tremendously extensive could it be that yi qi has just each this dinosaur has got smaller just membranes? decide <laughs> just decide
0: i said no. right up front you're calling it two things every time yi qi or Yi qi for you
1: I like the joke that I think Mark Evans came out with it. Mark Evans, please, you're so specialist. He said, I can't wait with him to find that. the next one. Scratchy. itchy, <laughs> and scratchy. But then other people said, no, that wouldn't happen because you don't have that, that many that, that, that set of syllables in Chinese. Yeah, we know. You don't have Scra? Yeah, apparently not. don't have Scra. Uh, so. Well, that doesn't um, matter actually,
0: because he doesn't. Yes, anyway.
1: there's tons more that could be said on this but the thing that one of the things that bugged me and this is an awesome fossil i'm not you know sort of downplaying it at all very happy to see it published um one of the things that bugged me is that every single artistic reconstruction done in conjunction with the press release and the paper shows it as a black screaming nightmare dragon of death (laughs) Uh, they even they've got a couple of artists to do these like, you know, beautiful sort of three D rendered, you know, rotating animations. And it is, it is like this I have my arms raised. For, yeah For,
0: for <laughs> listeners to the podcast Darren's <laughs> miming a, a black screaming dragon of death.
1: Like it's like a an evil vampire monster bastard creature from hell that wants to bite your face off. And um whereas if you look at the fossil and also, they feature a skeletal reconstruction, which looks very Hedonesque. esque. I have mentioned this on on Tezu. Mm. Um, this animal looks like one of those derpy little oviraptorosaur-style, cutie-faced things.
0: Yeah, with the sort of so, the buck teeth sort of thing. With the out. buck
1: teeth, it looks like a little derpy omnivorous Manoraptor and It does not look like a black screaming dragon of death. So, um, <laughs> yeah,
0: within we've been, within Darren.
1: <laughs> yeah it would be a women i guess yeah that's harking back to a previous episode so Probably i said episode
0: four well yeah go ahead <laughs> you said
1: i said dear paleo artists please produce some images of this thing that that make it look actually like a real animal and
0: um outrageous well, suggestion
1: yeah so emily did emily willoughby our friend did a brilliant one which, is, which I've shared on Tetsu, and she's obviously she's got on her site and everything. And then some guy called John Conway did one as well. And I like yours, but I wish I'd seen it. You didn't tell me, because you're such a slacker on the internet. You didn't tell me you'd done it.
0: Well, I tweeted about it twice, but you don't follow me on Twitter, so you don't know. <laughs> no, no.
1: <laughs> I don't pay attention to you. <laughs> You've
0: got um, me blocked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, before I forget, yeah. we should say, of course, that this was this membranous-winged scansoropterygids were predicted by Andrea Cow and Lucas Panzarin. I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly. Sorry to him. And, um, yeah, they they illustrated a membranous-winged one of these animals in 2008. Uh, and I think it's in All Your Yesterdays. It is, oh, yeah. oh, no, but not that one. Another one. There's another one. Um...
0: Uh yes, Andrea Gasler.
1: Yeah. So uh, yes, so so people had predicted the concept of membranous winged scanserepterogids sometime prior to the description of uh ye So yes, this is not is not a thoroughly novel concept. However, of course, you know, we should say that there's a difference between coming up with a concept in art and actually finding a fossil that demonstrates it. Um so your your illustration of Yi-Kui, um, I like the fact that you make it look like a derpy little parody thing, because that's kind of how I think it should look, and not a black screaming dino dragon <laughs> of death.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, if you actually sort of trace the bones and put the proper amount of feathers on its head, that's just what it ends up looking like in many ways. Obviously, I've, you know, coloured it and things like that, but...
1: Hmm. I think a lot of
0: the problem is that when 3D artists are still rendering each individual feather, which is wrong. That's not how you do feathers. Martin Ayek has written a good blog post about this, Feathers, You're Doing Mm. It Wrong. Yeah. And that just... If there are any 3D artists out there that listen to this podcast and you are thinking about rendering a feathered theropods...
1: Give us your money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then... Go and read this post by Mark Mart-, Ma- Mart-, <laughs> Mart-, Mart-, Mart. I thought it
1: was only Darren that mispronounces his name.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm
1: out of drink already. Yeah, That's <laughs> that was a bit of a...
0: <laughs> <laughs> Martin <laughs> Mike. And it's called Feathers, You're Doing It Wrong. It's just do not attempt to render every feather. That is an insane way to do it, and it will look wrong.
1: Or do not do this thing that is also still standard industry practice of doing the naked plucked animal first and then sticking feathers on yeah, that's it. That's what it means.
0: Yeah, that's what he means.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, sorry.
0: Yeah, render the, render the surface of the beast. Make sure that the skeleton fits in. Make sure that the animal fits in. But beyond that, you, you shouldn't be yeah, sticking feathers on a, naked, on a naked beast. That's a crazy way to do it. It's a lot of work and it looks wrong.
1: The Greg Paul way. Yeah, the Greg Paul way, yeah. Dinosaurs with feathers instead of feathered dinosaurs. Yes. Yeah. So, Um, um, do you want to say anything in particular about your picture of Yi Kui?
0: So, there's interestingly, there's quite
1: a, well, it's very uncertain
0: as to how the membrane extends. Now, because there's only small parts of the membrane, I believe, and they're sort of adjacent (laughs) to the fingers and a little bit, is there a little bit behind the radius, Nolner? Yeah, yeah, but it's on it, side. yeah, it's not clear that it goes all the way to the end of the long new bone, the, the styloform. Uh, I mean, uh, I think it's a fairly sensible assumption that it does. That it's a, you know it's fairly mm. extensive. It covers the hand and goes to the end of the styloform. Otherwise, what's that thing there for? Um, but where it attaches inside is very uncertain. So, there's some um, pictures showing it attaching to the leg, some sort of more like the hip. And I thought, well, they're possible, but I, you know, any, <laughs> anything seems possible at this stage. So, I did something more akin to attaching to the armpit, mm-hmm. um, just for variety. I think it's interesting that lots of pictures show... It. Given what we know about maniraptoran hips, how likely is it that it attached to legs that sprawled? And if they only, if they're only semi-sprawling, what sort of um, aerodynamic qualities would that give the in part of, inboard part of the membrane? And I, in some ways, I think that would be bad. It would be very, very um, draggy. Now I know that. Drag is not necessarily (laughs) bad in a parachuter, but it'd be draggy in the wrong way. Draggy more as in just sort of... Not in the furled, sense. A furled um, uh, thing (laughs) might might lead to them sort of tipping down nosewood. I don't know. It just seems funny to me that it would attach Mm -hmm. to the legs. But then we don't know, do we? We don't know about these particular animals' legs because they're all crushed. Um, fossils these chinese a lot of, like a lot of these chinese fossils there's not good 3d pre- preservation of the hips
1: yeah yeah it's got it's this 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 one's got a fairly decent hind limb but you can't second guess yeah whatever's going on with function at this stage can't begin to really um yeah, I think there's a number of possible things it could do, which which might not be what we would predict. But but I don't think at this stage we know enough to start saying what kind of. First of all, whether it would have an aerodynamic wing, right. and if it and if it did, exactly what form that would that would take. I don't think we. Hmm, I kind of think we don't think we know enough. On the other hand, I sort of think that as you've just implied, we should play it safe and look at what other man manraptors have, which uh, is not a thing that attaches to the. Attaches to the hind, but then, oh, is this totally new territory because it's a membranous wing? But then, now is it not such a big deal because there are membranous wings, there, there are membranes already in other manoraptorans? Um, but I think it is a big deal because, and you know,
0: in case anyone listening to this hasn't seen it, right, hasn't seen the fossil, hasn't seen the pictures, you should describe it a little bit. So, the hand is very large, it's very long, and the um. The styloform, this new bone, new bone, it's a novel bone that comes out of the wrist, back part of the wrist, is in fact the longest bone in the body. So it's longer than the ulna, which is long, and it's longer than the femur. It's longer than the tibia. Um, so it's, its in fact, I think it's probably the biggest bone in the body, isn't it? I'm yeah. pretty sure it is, yeah. yeah. So it's really long. So the, the, the membrane, if this styloform projected backwards... It's very deep, it's quite a big, extensive membrane. It's nothing like a protagium that you get in birds or the small amount of membrane you get behind the behind the hand where the feathers attach in so It's <clears> nothing <throat> like that. it's huge i mean I think that we're dealing with a qualitatively different thing, which is why this is a big deal. It's not a
1: well, I would say uh, the disclaimer there is that's true if you imagine the styloform element extending kind of somehow perpendicular to yes. the forearm, yes, because. That's what I said. Yeah. 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 If it, if it's, oh, I wasn't really listening. Sorry. If, <laughs> if it was kind of like directed <laughs> subparallel. <laughs> <laughs> if it's yeah, if it's like subparallel to the radius on then yes. you don't need to go there. But yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, which would be. Odd if it was sub parallel, why bother doing it? Um, yeah but you know, like a lot of these arguments, it feels weak, so it, it just it, you, i say that why bother doing it? It feels <laughs> nonsensical yeah. but i don 't at the moment i don 't have a stronger argument, although I feel like there is a strong argument in there i don 't know what it is
1: yeah, see my thinking on this the whole subject in general is that this is one of those cases where don't go nuts on speculating and coming up with elaborate models based on the one fossil we have, sit back, wait a couple of months, because they'll find another one. Because (laughs) the number of all of these Chinese feathered, fuzzy, you know, weird little manorapturans is, I don't think there's any that are currently known from a singleton. It's it's been a very short period of time before the the, the fossil beds there are so rich, you know, it doesn't take long before they've found uh, reasonable numbers. And we only need one good one one better than the holotype to i don't want to say resolve but to elucidate uh, some of these uh some of the issues that we have i disagree here, so. I do you now
0: you. yes i don't think that future fossils are going to elucidate this tremendously and i'll tell you why i don't think we're ever going to find the inner part of the wing membrane or the the, the patagium you just don't find it on you don't find it on many pterosaurs. I don't think you're going to find it on these things. I don't think we're ever going to find uncrushed hips, because all Chinese fossils have crushed hips. So what are we waiting on here? A better preservation of the outer <laughs> membrane? Yeah, I think we could probably get that
1: amber. Amber, yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah.
0: In some ways, I think mm, this is a pretty good fossil. I think that things might get a bit clearer, but I don't think they'll get a lot clearer. Mm, I don't think we'll get answers to these, like, just... Because you could say that about anything, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. we'll find a better one. We'll find a
0: better one, and we'll we'll have all the answers. I don't
1: think so. (laughs) Well, we'll just see. (laughs) The interesting (laughs) thing
0: I would be uh, to see is that, um, because, you know, how big is it uh, given various models and how much... Yeah, a little bit of aerodynamics work are we looking in the realms of something that could could do flapping flight if it had the musculature for example yeah, or, yeah you know is it is it something that could have proper flight or is it something that is a definitely a a parachuter or a glider
1: so there there has been like tens and tens and tens of comments specifically about this yes. on the tetrabol ory article but this is another kind of thing that should be in one of our categories uh, uh <laughs> scientific american blogs recently had a platform change and uh, if you visit the site uh then um you may know that something the the comments are now completely basically screwed uh, hopefully it's temporary. I mean, I'm talking with people all the time saying, oh, yeah, well, don't worry. It was, this is just a temporary thing. It'll get fixed in time. So far, you know, nothing's looking too good at the moment. I'm sure it'll get fixed in time. But loads and loads of comments have disappeared. <laughs> so the Yi Kui article went from 125-ish comments to mm-hmm. 80 to Mm. 80 they just like vanished and i don't know where they are and i can't get behind the scenes to look normally as the owner of a blog you get you you can go to a place on your dashboard (laughs) where you can see your um your comments and i i can't there's no way of doing that so um (sighs) so i was guessing if
0: it was a platform change they had to migrate the data across into a new database and didn't manage it quite well enough
1: yeah. But so there's probably
0: nowhere to find them unless you've got access to the old database.
1: Uh, which I don't. So um, mm, that's, I'm not that's very happy not. with that. Um, yes.
0: Of course, people can speculate and I can speculate, but uh, someone needs to do some models and some numbers.
1: Yep. Well, we're still in early stages in terms of like thinking about the aerodynamics of all these feathered flappy little theropods um the the stuff that's been done so microraptor has obviously been the subject of an enormous number of studies i think it's going on for like about eight different papers just on the aerodynamics possible flight behavior and plan form of microraptor with there being plans to um do this kind of stuff on other archaic well birds as well as you know members of the other manoraptor lineages um but um I know that work is like in prep. A lot of it hasn't been published yet. So so it's only going to be a matter of time if oh, someone sure, does yeah. this. With, I mean, I'm yeah, sure
0: people it. are talking about it right now, doing it right now. Right now. Right now. And as you say, I, I do think that there probably will be new fossils that will give some new information, but I'm not particularly hopeful that they'll give information on the bits that I think are the most mysterious, the inner membrane and the hips and what's going on there. <sighs>
1: Yeah, and so far this group of dinosaurs is unique to China as well. They're not, they're not found, like, you know, because people have found, say, for example, with Microraptor, well, our knowledge of the three-dimensional anatomy of Dromaeosaurids is, is, is uh, significantly augmented by, by three-dimensional specimens from, you know, like Canada. Mm.
0: Um, <coughs> <coughs> Indeed, yeah.
1: Mm. So
0: there's Nothing a chance like that. that this stuff will just remain forever mysterious
1: it's a bit annoying Ooh, yes so so there you go we've spoken quite a bit about Yi Kui and uh, it was deliberately named to be the shortest dinosaur name it's the shortest animal name on par with E.I.O a bat named in I think 1910 um, so yeah let's move on what else do we want to talk about Cash for questions ah, okay <laughs> uh <laughs> cash for questions yeah this is a regular part of the show where we invite you the listener to give us money <laughs> and uh, to the people that i've met on the street that have come up to me and said down i've got a cash for question for you got out of their wallet and given me a pound coin no that's not how it works but <laughs> i appreciate your <laughs> uh, and to jason now we come to the subjects of jason at the uh, recent RSPB meeting, who uh, engaged me in conversation, spoke to him for about half an hour, and then afterwards he said, and those are my cash for questions. <laughs> and I was, yeah. Did he give
0: you any cash? Because otherwise they're just questions.
1: I did ask him for money, but he didn't give me any. <laughs> ah,
0: You've got to get it up front, Darren, you sucker.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's a, yeah. yeah. There's a joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, what cash for questions do we have then, John?
0: Okay, so... Can canine transmissible venereal tumour be considered a unicellular tetrapod? And this question is from... Oh, sorry, yes. This is from Ika, Ivko Mikhail? That's how it's Ivko written. Ivko Mikhail. Mm. Sorry, Ivko. Yes. Thank, you,
1: thank you for your question. So the question here is, okay, um, venereal tumours, these are sexually transmitted populations of... of uh, tumorous cells that can be transferred when dogs uh, mate. Um, And the tumours are formed of canine cells. Mm. But this is like a parasitic, I don't want to say organism, it's a parasitic entity that is obviously being passed from dog to dog. So when I first saw this question, and I'm sure you'll say the same thing, I thought, well, if we're talking about like a cancerous bunch of cells, then that can't be considered a, a tetrapod because it's not part of clade tetrapoda. Yes. But now knowing that it is actually formed of canine cells, so we are talking about part of a body of a dog or a canine because it may not necessarily have originated with Domestic dogs. It, there's some suggestion that it could could have originally evolved in coyotes or something. Um, is this an independently evolving organism? And in which case, given that it consists of dog cells, canine cells, it's it's it has evolved within tetrapoda.
0: Yeah, and not only that, it is entirely canine cells. I think, isn't it? It's yeah, entirely yeah. canine cells that are spreading. Viruses, in some ways, are similar, you know, that they carry genetic material from place to place. So you can pick up, they can pick up genetic material and move it to another host. But it's, it's it feels like more of a mixing thing happening there, and we just ignore that, because that happens in bacteria and, and viruses, and they're not real living things anyway, so who cares?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> so there is a... They're not a, much better um, than fish.
0: yeah. But this is, yeah, this is entirely canine cells that are left their original canine and are now spreading and presumably, well, yeah, and reproducing elsewhere a tetrapod a unicellular tetrapod
1: mm and and there is a a precedent for this because have you heard of Henrietta Lack yes. so Yes, the um, there's. I believe there's a book called "The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lack. and uh, some unfortunate due to uh, a significant gap in my knowledge, I don't know like as much about this whole story as I as I I would like. Henrietta Lack was a uh, a cancer a, a patient who died from cervical cancer in 1951, and cells were taken, cancerous cells were taken from her and kept and studied, and since 1951, they've been kept in labs, and they've changed over time. So they have evolved, Uh, they've been cloned. They're called HeLa cells, and they are different enough from the cells of uh, other people that the claim has been made I don't know when it was. It was published by Levan Van Velen, who or Lee Van Valen, I've never known how to pronounce it. I think Lee, Van Va- Lee Van Velen, uh, uh, mammalogist, paleomammalogist. I don't know when they published that name, but th- they proposed, oh, it's 1991. Lee Van Valen and, oh, and a colleague, uh, whose name I can't pronounce, they proposed that, that these cells should be recognised as a new species, which they mm. called... Helicyton Gartleri. The species are named after Stanley Gartler, whom von Valen credits with discovering the remarkable success of this species. So Van Valen argued that um, that the, the this population of cells are chromosomally incompatible with the cells of other humans. Or the cells or with humans, if you want to uh, okay. they've got a distinct ecological niche. <laughs> yeah. <Yeehaw! laughs> Uh, their ability to persist <laughs> and uh, they have an ability to persist and expand well beyond the desires of human cultivators. That's a bit of a weird one. And, hang on, uh, I
0: have a desire to.
1: Uh, ability to persist ability. and expand well beyond the desires of the human cultivators. As in as in this population, this thing, this entity could, in theory, persist without uh, human um, uh, Cultivation, I think that's the argument. I haven't, I haven't read the actual paper. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm looking at Wikipedia right now, I'm afraid. And um, defi- g- g- HeLa can be defined as a species that has its own clonal carrier type. So um, now so I know that some people regard this as a bit of a joke and just haven't taken it seriously. It's like, yeah, what a population of cells in the laboratory. How is that a species? But then on the other hand, other people say that, well, you know, within strict kind of understanding of what a air quotes species is then uh yes this is something new and distinct and it has evolved and um <sighs>
0: yeah i guess what makes that one feel less compelling although yeah obviously you can argue i think fairly convincingly that it's whatever you mean by species but is that it is um being artificially kept and bred Right, these cells are being uh, yeah kept alive by people yeah. in labs, whereas uh, canine transmissible thing. Transmissible, yeah, we well, need a shorter name for that. Oh,
1: it's CTVT. CTVT.
0: CTVT. Yeah. CTVT. Mm. Um, is actually. For one of the better words, yeah, it is in the wild, isn't it? So yes, oh, yes, it, it is. It exists, yeah. exists in the wild, and it is persisting of its own accord. If you see what I mean. Now mm. they argue that um, what's the names cells would as well, but they're not, as far as I know, are they? They're not out in the wild human population.
1: I don't think so. No, no, that it's only a strain. Yeah, it's only a strain in laboratories. Yep. Uh,
0: so. All sorts of weird things exist in laboratories, right? With gene splicing and stuff. Um, So uh, whether we want to start considering all those things species, I don't know. But uh, I think that would be somewhat pointless and difficult to keep up with.
1: Uh, I wonder why Van Valen and... uh, So their co-author is... Um, Majorana, Majorana I wonder why they did decide to do this. Were were, were they doing it as a theoretical exercise mm. rather than rather than thinking that oh, we definitely need to name this as a new species? I, I think it was published in a, a journal. I think it was yeah, Evolutionary Theory and Review, which is one of those journals that that yeah includes deliberately kind of provocative, so the kind of articles where we need to talk about this, we need to think about this, not not necessarily. I am. I am stamping a claim on this. Um, yes. So it, it, so does, it, it more does to, tra-
0: to provoke this sort of d- discussion about what we mean by this sort of thing, rather yeah, than yeah, so much that that needed to be named a new species because yeah. of some concern or other.
1: Yeah. So if we, I think if, if it had been like widely accepted, it certainly hasn't been widely accepted as Henrietta Lack proposal. What was the species name again? het helocytone gartleri if that had been accepted and now people were routinely thinking that evolving populations of cells that have been derived from complete organisms if it was now convention that we accept those as a valid taxa then I would I would definitely think that ctvt and it's close relative uh, devil facial tumour disease um, then yes these should be recognised as organisms but
0: so you- I kind of the interesting thing is, if we didn't know about its origin, we didn't know it was canine, for example. Mm. I don't think there'd be any argument. I think we'd just say, "Yes, it is." This is a this is an organism. It's sort of like a well, it's not a bacteria or a virus, but it, it's something like that. You know, it's an evolving organism. It's out there. It gets transmitted.
1: But is it possible that we could know of such things and not know of things like, and not know of cancers? Because I also think it's obvious that it's a population of cancerous cells, mm. and it's and in that case, it's but not okay, normal. So,
0: yeah, but if we didn't know cancerous, cancer was generally something that your body did itself.
1: Because the abnormality here is that it is a transmissible, transmissible cancer, yeah. which mm, makes me think that the weird thing, the novelty is the is that the amazing thing is that is that somehow. There are forms of cancer. the The novelty is that there are transmissible forms of cancer, not that not the, there are cancers that mimic organisms. Ah, oh. but they aren't.
0: <laughs> it, it, the question is whether it is an organism.
1: What is what's, the, what's his specific question?
0: Is it, it, could, it should have been considered it? a unicellular
1: tetrapod? So basically, we should just answer with yes or no. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with no, because I'm not interested in it. <laughs> <laughs> you are quite interested in it. We've That's sat good.
0: here for about ten minutes talking about it. Um, yeah. I think it is very interesting. I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> 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 I'm not Actually, happy with it, it, though. I'm not happy with it, and I tell you because yeah. I tell you if it was something like genetically transferred material from viruses, then I think once you start moving away from the um what's the word? The traditional way of reproduction then yeah, I don't know so for example with a cloned person, I mean actual cloned person so uh, like a there's, some, there's something wrong with your uh your transporter and you end up with two copies. Mm-hmm. It's that other person. Um, oh, it doesn't even matter if there's something wrong with your transporter. It's the person that comes out at the other end because you know you deconstruct the person on one end and you construct them at the other end.
1: You're talking about Star Trek. Again. Star Trek. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is that person even a tetrapod?
1: Now you see if like imagine that there were populations of cancerous cells on dogs that um
0: back on topic
1: yeah that evo- sorry that evolved into like a giant kind of like oozing slime mold style creature yeah and and then actually evolved into like a dog sized kind of predator that absorbed dogs <laughs> and then and then evo- and then gave rise to a whole lineage of like descendant giant kind of like predatory sexual blob monsters, This well, is the then, thing,
0: isn't
1: it? It's the thing. Yeah. Then I would definitely think that, yes, tetrapods, in this particular case, canines, have spawned a lineage of indisputable things that should be classed as organisms. But the fact that we're talking about uh, tiny, like, you know, millimetre or centimetre wide patches of uh, crusty tissue... On the penises of domestic dogs, um, yeah. You're just blazers, your the- Darren.
0: <laughs> no, I think I think the critical thing is that they don't live independently of dogs. Right? If this thing could live elsewhere, yeah, then I would definitely be saying yes. As it is, it's sort of well, sort sort of. What if it jumped species a few times? You know, what if it got into other carnivores or something like this?
1: Well, the fact that, like I said, the fact that it's already suspected of having been derived the, that it's that it's crossed species barriers, involving because it's supposed to. So it's in domestic dogs, but I think it's suspe- suspected of having arisen in coyotes or wolves. Of course, all of which hybridize. Yes. So, what um, does species
0: mean in that context? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bigger. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, yeah it, it, The fact that it's sort of restricted to a relatively small clade, let's say It can't live independently as far as I know Well, at least not naturally You probably have to artificially keep it alive mm. Mm. But if it did, I think there'd be a much more obvious case that it was But I'm still going to give it a tentative yes
1: Yeah, i kind of give it a maybe, maybe because yeah.
0: if it went on, as you say, to become a oozing slime that lived independently and devoured <laughs> dogs and stuff, then you would say yes. And who knows in the future? So we're just sort of, you know... So and in, I look forward and to the day when... And you that, that was the original, you know, that was the beginning of that, wasn't it? That yeah. was the stem oozy dog.
1: Yes. Yeah. In fact, already ideas are forming in my mind, as goes speculative biology the future of life on this earth and uh, yeah okay Okay. well there you go uh, as always complete mess of an answer and uh, totally on the fence but an interesting topic and uh, let's move on so thank you Ivko which I'm sure is pronounced in some other fashion I shall take a drink Ah, oh, I've got no drink left
0: <sighs> right so let's do another cash for question then So this one's from David Eden, Um, and the question is, have you come across the idea of Africa as Pleistocene carryover, and if so, can you point to some references? So Mm. have you come across the idea that Africa is a, a remnant Pleistocene fauna, especially the megafauna? I think it's the notion here that megafauna is a Pleistocene sort of event and that they've all been going extinct and we're left with patches and the one patch that's left is Africa.
1: I would say this is a pretty familiar idea. Um, it's been discussed many times, but rather than it being Africa, that uh, 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 this, may be, this may be the same concept but just using different words, rather than thinking of, of like the African megafaunal assemblage as kind of archaic as a thing of the past is the fact that the rest of the world is unusual in that we've killed off the megafauna so the african megafaunal community is like in quotes normal that should be normal but uh, extinctions and all the other continents have destroyed the megafauna that was present obviously in the Pleistocene, as is well known i think you know everyone knows you know north america europe northern asia uh, all these places had mammoths and Big sloths in the Americas and big camels, blah blah blah. Australia diprotodontids and big kangaroos and marsupial lions. South America had sloths and mastodons and many other things. And so, why is Africa unusual? Well, the uh, the explanation that's been favoured by overkill people people that favour the overkill hypothesis, the idea that humans came along and killed everything, is is they've said that well, because the African animals evolved uh, co-evolved with Humans,
0: Mm.
1: hominins, and hominids. Then um, those animals were kind of you know recognised us as predators and kept away from us. Whereas the animals on the other continents were totally naive and uh, and allowed people to walk up to them and bash their heads in that kind of stuff. (laughs) Um, Which I don't know. I think there's there's I think there's maybe something in that. But of course, problems with it are that we know that people have and still do cause tremendous amount of predation. On uh, endemic African fauna, it's not as if they're like they're immune to predation from humans because they're so used to humans as predators. And it's not
0: like there there isn't megafauna in Europe and other places that has survived. Yeah, yeah. and is aware that we are that we are are aware (laughs) we are predators. You know, deer and things like this. They don't act like, oh yeah, come and
1: (laughs) bash me on the head. (laughs) And then there's the whole climate thing as well, the idea that, you know, climatic changes and and associated ecological and floral shifts have contributed to the decline and extinction of megafauna, and those effects have been less severe or different. The pattern's been different in Africa, and that that explains how come African animals have uh, persisted. Of course, all these things are so complicated. There's all these so many different facets to it, because, you know, it's not as if Africa has... Not been affected by megafauna extinction because we know from uh, fossils, archaeological remains, and art left by people, and various other lines of evidence, we know that you know all the megafauna that we think of as East African and South African was present like across the whole of North Africa and north of the Sahara. We know that the Sahara was green uh, on several occasions within the last like hundred thousand years, uh, and all those animals are gone. All of them are gone, pretty much. Um, Climatic changes, human hunting. Um, so it's not as if Africa has like been immune to this stuff. It's um, extinction is always such a mess. It's so difficult to come up with some like simple, nice, tidy picture, and one probably probably doesn't. Okay,
0: probably- but there is. I mean, in some ways, the fact that there have been major extinctions in Africa is fine. Because the notion hmm. is that all these big animals, all these, all the megafauna, is going extinct, right? This is a mass extinction for megafauna, yeah. and the fact that there are remnant populations in some places is expected. You know, not everything goes extinct at exactly the same time in the same in all areas. It's not unexpected that they're going extinct in Africa. It's just that that's where they've hung on the longest. Um, why that is, don't know. Because we don't even have a clear picture of what why the extinction is happening in the first place and lots of proximal reasons especially in africa now i mean it's fairly obvious habitat loss and stuff but um what happened to all the other megafauna as you say is still a deb- bit
1: debated yeah we uh, we are just we are going well over the scope of david's question of course because his question is have you come across this idea and from both of us, okay. the answer is yes. Ah. <laughs> okay, so that's half of the money, right? And if so, can you point us <laughs> some references? Uh, I'm thinking Martin and Klein, and I'm just trying to find the reference because I don't have the book to hand. There's a really good. Oh, I mean, there's quite a few good books on uh, uh, on interaction between people and um, uh, other animals and Pleistocene extinctions. Okay, I'm recommending in particular a book. Uh, by paul martin and richard klein klein k-l-e-i-n it's called quaternary extinctions a prehistoric revolution and it's been a while since i read the book actually it was published in 1989 but it's a big thick book and uh it's got a lot of stuff relevant to this it might be a good introduction to the literature uh, I I can think of a few other books that do that do cover the same thing, but they they're sort of more specialized, they're on like you know particular groups of animals. This book is hugely expensive. Even paperback is over fifty quid. No, oh, you can get it for twenty quid. Um, I think my one's a photocopy. Um but um <laughs> which probably
0: cost you about a hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah. That's what I did. What photocopy? Predatory did? dinosaurs of the world when I was a teenager. Yep. Photocopied the whole thing cost me about well three times as much as buying the book, but I couldn't buy the book. There's no Amazon in those, ki- in those days, kids.
1: Um, I photocopied all the pictures from British dinosaurs of the world yeah. but but there are but I that was actually an interesting book for me because there was a very short lag between me discovering it in a library and getting to know the art and then and then finding it fortuitously for sale one time. Strangely enough, in the Natural History Museum bookshop in London, which now is completely useless. But back then was a treasure trove of like obscure and uh you know amazing books that you didn't normally see as a young enthusiast. Yeah. So but but that's unusual. I have got I mean you're not supposed to photocopy books. I think it's technically illegal. <laughs> of course. Yeah. But I've got quite a few volumes oh. that have been photocopied because I'm the same. I couldn't I couldn't buy them for fifty pounds or more, whatever they cost, but um, I could photocopy them over time. Generally, and, I
0: had no choice. There was nowhere to buy them. There was no way to get these things. That uh, I knew of, anyway.
1: I've, I must have said on Tetripods Orgy before, there's a whole list of books that I grew up reading about and never, ever saw, and was completely unable to find them. Hmm. So, just one example, Walkers Mammals of the World. All the time, as a, as a like, teenage nerd interest in animals always hearing about this two volume set walkers mammals world and never seeing it and then one one time m- myself and tony were we were on holiday in plymouth in southern england and um, found it in a second hand bookshop but i didn't i couldn't buy it it was too expensive she actually went and got uh, it's a long story anyway she, she she did pick it up for me she went down to plymouth another time There you go. Uh, thrilling story though. um story. yes heartwarming st- story a thrilling and heartwarming story. Um,
0: yes. Back to the Pleistocene. Um, the cat, the question that I read out was the short version. There's a there's a long preamble, which I think is. You, you've put it in yeah. the wrong
1: cell. but whatever, yeah. Yes, I put it in the wrong cell. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, but yeah, that's yeah. We, we can We not talk about that yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so to people who can't see what we're looking at. Um, yeah, the Pleistine never stopped, and that's what you said. There. Da-da-da-da-da. Yep. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we. I mean, we could say a bit more on Pleistocene megafaunal and extinctions if need be, but um.
0: Well, I think we did a pretty short one on that. God, this is an edit. Um, so I think maybe we should talk a little bit more. What's another angle on this? Um. Maybe something just about the big animals just being more vulnerable to extinction.
1: I think I think we think of the people have tended to think of the um African modern fauna as kind of Pleistocene in style because you've got right, two ish big elephants, two-ish big rhino. I'm putting the ishes in because of course there are debates about how many species are involved. Uh you know, there's supposed to be two big rhinos in Africa, but some people say that the white rhinos should be classed as two species. Uh then you've got like a large obviously diversity of uh, of bovids. Uh and this kind of and and then obviously numerous uh, well, a couple of large carnivores, uh, numerous mid sized and smaller ones, and so on and so forth. This kind of
0: too, but yep,
1: Yeah, ahead. yeah. This kind of community structure is reminiscent of what's seen in the Pleistocene. The Pleistocene, like, worldwide. But so why is modern Africa, you think of the community structure I've just referred to, why is modern Africa thought of as different from, like, modern Europe or modern Asia or modern North America, modern South America? It tends to be just the lack of the real big guys, the animals over a ton. Mm. So, because, you know, you think of, like, the bovids, and the primates and the carnivorans, well, the faunas of, like, you know, tropical Asia and North America and even South America, they aren't tremendously different from those that I just described for Africa. The only difference is rhino-sized animals and and elephant-sized animals. Yeah. So, So is it that you only need to knock out, in this case, four or five species before people stop thinking of your habitat? Oh, giraffes. Didn't mention giraffes. Yeah. So... Yeah, you only need to knock out those species for people to think of a. Because if we forget, if, imagine if modern Africa didn't have oh, and hippos. <laughs> imagine mm-hmm. if imagine if modern Africa didn't have hippos, rhinos, and elephants. Giraffes. Well, giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and don't worry about crocodiles and elands yeah. and ostriches. Yeah. And uh, if it didn't have those things, then is the assemblage of species species of, of big mammals really that different from say modern day North America modern day Asia okay Asia Asian elephant the rhinos the water buffalo um, and then you know, big carnivorans you've got tigers and you've got uh, large canids and bears yeah hm.
0: and you see you think about in North America you've and Asia, until very recently, Europe. You've got pretty large bears, right? And yeah. the biggest predators are in fact not found in Africa.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, Africa did have bears in the Pliocene, a particularly big one called Agriotherium. Um, it but, sounds angry. <laughs> and also there were bears into, like... Uh, not historical times, but kind of like Roman times. There there, there were bears in the Atlas Mountains. Mm. So what I'm now thinking, I'm not sure I've really thought about this properly before, is have we actually got it completely wrong? Are we wrong in thinking that Africa is particularly special? And that, in fact, the modern world isn't really that different <laughs> compared to the black seed one. It's, the, it's, the, it's the, the the real like multi-ton things, the giant ground sloths. Mastodons, mammoths, uh, and and a kind of a lower diversity, maybe, of mid-sized herbivores, like numbers of horse species and antelope species. Um, you know, I don't know. Yeah,
0: um, I think I, I personally, I think it's that. Yeah, I, I think that the way you're going with this is probably some something close to the truth. You don't need to lose that many to because because the biggest ones tend to be very very famous if you just lose a couple of those you've lost all of them and although in terms of um species diversity or whatever it's not that great a difference yeah it feels like a big difference
1: well, maybe um, because they're keystone herbivores, they're the animals that are literally changing the shape of an ecosystem. Yeah. You know, elephants pushing over trees and creating ponds that become lakes and marshes. Uh, maybe they maybe they really are that important. And if you've got a population of only a few hundred or a few thousand big rhinos or elephants in uh, North America, South America, wherever, are they significant enough to really change the shape of the fauna? Because that's, um, yeah, Who knows? well, that's, that's what's been argued. That's why, um, uh, is it Paul Martin? This, this is, it's related to this whole, um, rewilding effort. The idea that if you reintroduce elephants to, we spoke about rewild, yeah. rewilding way back, a much earlier episode of the podcast, but yeah, it was about two yeah. episodes ago. I don't think it was. It wasn't. It was like episode 15 or something. I guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> guarantee. <laughs> I will. St- I will put money on it. I will eat my hat in public. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Now this this idea that reintroducing like let's say Asian elephants to North America that they will you know change the shape of the flora episode and 33. Uh, episode thirty three. Episode thirty three. Okay. Um yeah that they they have that much of an impact, so if those things are intact in an intact pliocene ecosystem, then yes, is it really that you do have a totally different shaped fauna from the sort of more bland, monotonous one that you have today in places where the megafauna have been extirpated mm. on the so other think, hand, of course, yeah. sorry, let me just say on the other hand, the fact that the fact that again, we touched on this before when we were talking about The fact that the extinctions have have related to people and people are now occupying the places where megafauna used to live, it's like, what kind of impact have people had on environments and habitats and floral diversity and patterns of ecosystems? Well, we know, obviously, a pretty substantial one. So is it that what's actually happened is that, yeah, ecosystem change isn't being made by mammoths or ground sites anymore. It's like now... Uh, an animal that is equivalent in biomass or probably well exceeds in biomass things like rhinos and mammoths and ground sloths, but is having much, in fact, more of an impact. It's the circle of (laughs) life.
0: That is exactly what's happened. I I was going to say that the change in Europe and certainly parts of Asia um, and eastern North America is utterly drastic. People have taken over virtually the entire landscape. There isn't uh, There's not stretches of wilderness. And there might be nature parks, but they're very patchy. They're small. They might not have been contiguous with the uh, um, <clears throat> previous wilderness. Uh, so it's not really surprising in these places that there isn't megafauna left. Where would an elephant live in Europe? There's just nowhere left. Hmm. Whereas you could see that ha- you could see it in North America in wilder parts of North America, um, and parts of Russia, of course. But even so, you know what I'm saying is yeah, the human impact has been so enormous in some places. Just the human density is so high that, of course, you can't get. You know, of the places left where you could still have a reasonable amount of megafauna. Mm. Do we still have a reasonable megafauna, I guess is the question. So North America, South America, parts of Russia, parts of Asia and Africa are what you're left with.
1: Yeah, the great desert in Australia when there's tons of stuff to eat. Yeah.
0: (laughs) 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 And uh, in Australia, I guess you do have something akin to what it used to be like. Of course, there are famous things that used to be bigger or whatever, but um, Australian fauna is not. Drastically different to the past, I don't think, in terms of size, average size, anyway. Mm. You know, red kangaroos, pretty big, and kangaroos, all, and not yeah, absolutely huge animals. But they're absolutely large animals, um, and they yeah.
1: Well, similar thing to what we just said about um, about people taking up the space previously occupied by Megaphone is where is in is in the modern day. It's far easier for mid-sized animals to. Boom into enormous populations that probably do have a similar impact on the landscape. Probably do, you know, incorporate as much biomass as those megafauna. So Australia, the numbers of, I th- is it red kangaroos or grey kangaroos? I can't remember which grey one. It must be grey kangaroos. They've just like their populations have just gone nuts, haven't they? And yeah. people have to cull like two million of them every year or something, and make them into whatever you make. Go and sit down. Sit. Go on. Sorry. Dog wandering around. I can hear your little claws clapping on the floor. Sit down. Sit down. Yes.
0: Great kangaroos, yes. Great
1: kangaroos in Australia. In North America, the uh, we're all familiar with these stories about the endless herds of bison and very large herds of pronghorn antelope as well, and the stories of the – Flocks of passenger pigeons so big that they would you know block out the sun and take three days to go overhead for a single flock, and it consisted of a billion birds and when they landed in an orchard, every tree would be broken to the ground, and there would be like ten foot of guano well, that probably uh it's difficult to ever work out what really is natural in the world, given that we are part of nature, mm. but that situation probably isn't. I, th- I can't think of another way to say it. that isn't like the, the 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 that wasn't the the, the state the condition prior to yeah you know, that, that that hadn't existed for like a, a tremendously long time huge populations of kangaroos huge populations of bison huge populations of passenger pigeons like huge populations of people are all consequences of whatever changes occurred uh, after the pleistocene and which are involving climate change and human hunting and habitat change, faunal dynamics. Um, yeah, different animals able to exploit uh, an ecosystem that previously had a far more kind of a richer, more diverse tapestry with smaller populations of a much larger number of species. Uh, that's kind of something I think about it. And I, I find there isn't there often isn't enough... Um, uh, interplay between people that think about these different things I, I've, I've been to talks where people talk about passenger pigeons every single talk about passenger pigeons or about bison of North American bison and it's like boo hoo hoo isn't it bad yeah. passenger yeah. pigeons went from like 60 billion to nothing in like 200 years yes it's bad it's bad I'm not denying it. I, I wish passenger pigeons weren't extinct but these people tend to have no concept no idea of the fact that those enormous Like sky darkening clouds of passenger pigeons. That wasn't what, that wasn't the condition for like the whole duration of passenger pigeons being around. That was an unusual situation that arose due to.
0: And if they were giving these talks 200, 300 years ago, maybe 400 years ago, they'd be saying, boo hoo hoo, look at these crazy big. Flocks of passenger pigeons where there used to be all this diversity of birds. Now we've just got this one horrible
1: flying rat that pooped everywhere. <laughs> Good riddance to him, I say. I would have strangled Martha with my own hands. She died in 1914 in the zoo of Rinderpest. Yeah. Not Rinderpest, of the flu or something. Oh, um, Ex- yes. migratory. Uh, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't dislike passenger pigeons. I like them very much. Yeah. So
0: well, yes, the the flying rats thing, and the same for bison. Yeah. Um. But well, yeah. My point was that you know, of course, that that might have replaced, as you say, a more rich tapestry of um of smaller species, and um, yeah, people might have been upset about that if it happened quickly enough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Right. I think right. we answered that. Uh, I think we that's... have not. Well, yes, you have actually answered that. you are given a reference. So we've, we've answered the question. There's a bunch of other references. I'm not sure which... we've given much clarity. But...
1: Pa. Pa. This is a tetsu podcast. Mm. You should know what to expect. <laughs> Thank you to our cash for questioners. We do appreciate your indeed and, questions.
0: Yeah, people get in your cash for questions because actually we don't. That's it for now. We've got no backlog and um, yeah. So for next episode, get them in. Yes?
1: Yes! Right. Let's wrap it up. We have been talking about the TetsuCon. I'm not going to say anything dumb right now, don't worry, but Mm. we we are very aware of the fact that, 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 well, things didn't happen as they did last year, and that's due to problems with us trying to get a venue. We are currently in negotiations and we'll have news soon, so please do... Uh, well listen to the next one because then we'll have some more i'll news. just say
0: keep the entirety of november clear
1: if you're ah. interested
0: in Tetsucon, say no to everything in november
1: it's not going to be a summer conference no are you doing the pterosaur conference this year i am are you doing svpca this year i am are you doing the? Uh, yeah, no, I think those are the only ones I'm doing. I'm not doing the SVP this year. Um, okay, okay. Is there anything else we want to talk about before we wrap it up? I mean, I, we, 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 uh, we've been talking for ages, so I think we should stop. Ages. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Georgie podcast, cast, whatever, Carts. and uh, um. My name is uh, Darren Nation. I currently blog at uh, Scientific American, which is a bit, little bit broken. The comment system totally screwed up, but uh, you know, uh, stick with it. I'm sure it'll work out in the end. If you're interested in any of the stuff we talk about, you might like to buy our books, which include All Yesterdays, which is about science speculation and paleontology, and the Cryptozoological Book One Book, on. book Two, <laughs> so imminent. <laughs> uh, these books can be purchased from our irregular books shop where you can also download all your yesterdays yeah. which is also about science, speculation and paleontology and, and includes to the- a
0: number of predictions
1: yes, yes which uh, probably,
0: yeah. were predictions when it was first out and now have come true I
1: think so this was were-
0: like the third one
1: the technical term for that is predictions so it probably will turn out to be that everything in that book is true Sorry, I meant confirmed predictions or yeah.
0: semi-confirmed. They're not, obviously, they're not exact, but yeah.
1: Anyway. Yeah. Um, oh, Redbubble Shop. Uh, I sell witty, brilliant, and reasonably priced merchandise at the Red Redbubble Shop, which is at redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Tetsu. There is also Tetsu podcast merchandise, which you should buy for yourself or your friends. Redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash...
0: TetraPodcats.
1: TetraPodcats. We want to see those T-shirts. Um, now, I did ask people to retweet the fact... Uh, I said I, if you retweet anything to do with podcasts I'll mention you on the podcast. So thank you, Elsa. You're a wonderful human being. Thank you, Angela Wells, also wonderful. Thank you to uh, <coughs> Rhiannon Short, also wonderful. And finally, thank you to Ozzy the Corgi. Ozzy oh,
0: the Corgi.
1: Ozzy the Corgi. <laughs> amazing. He's a good type of that little dog. Yeah,
0: I'd love to see his keyboard. Do you think it's got really little keys or really big keys? (laughs) (laughs) It seems like there's only two ways he could go there.
1: He also wanted to know our opinions on the Hesperosaurus sexual dimorphism paper. Now, he's being a little bit controversial that Hesperosaurus is the same animal as Stegosaurus and Josie. It was originally published as Hesperosaurus Mm. and was then controversially sunk into Stegosaurus. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about that too. Um, But, um, hashtag Put a number on it. <clears throat> what do you mean by that do you mean as in a cash for question number or
0: no I mean as in how many steps are you willing to
1: accept ah yes yes now that's the yeah that, I'll, I'll stop there because that's relevant to the whole taxonomy of, source, of Um okay I tweet at will you join me for a little uh, refreshment <laughs> <laughs> everyone's invited of course having trouble with your droid <laughs> um, at Tezu.
0: what scene is that in I don't it's remember
1: the bit, that uh, uh, Bespin Clown City Uh, it's where uh, Chewbacca has got like C-3PO broken up in bits in a box and Lando comes in and says the Princess Leia, ah, you truly belong with us among the clouds and then he says, Would you like to come with me for some refreshment? And they go along yeah. and they go into a they go into a dinner room and who is there sat at the head of the table oh, Spoilers there. Spoilers. He's, he's already eaten all the pies. <laughs> it's none other than Darth Vader with Boba Fett and and Han Solo whips out his laser going like that and uh Darth Vader using the power of the force whips the laser out of his hand and says we would be honored if you would join us <laughs> It's pretty amazing that-, that Han Solo managed to miss He didn't He actually he actually shoots laser bolts into Darth Vader's hand ah, yes, but yes, Darth yes. Vader is so I remember this no, Powerful no. of the Force man but he can just take it yeah they and and that's what that's a thing and you didn't elaborate on that elsewhere in the canon that like in all you know in all the prequels you shoot someone you shoot a jedi they've got to uh, somehow at a speed beyond anything we can possibly comprehend they somehow whip a laser bolt out the way with a lightsaber well and interestingly,
0: they, the laser bolts they travel rather slowly don't they like they're you can very see slow. them go
1: much slower than bullets. Go back in time to the world of Star Wars with a Luger 54, yeah. and you could take out an entire battalion of Jedi and stormtroopers and defeat Darth Vader.
0: Now, correct uh, me if I'm wrong, it's a Star Wars tangent, but um, maybe um, uh, Sith—that's the—that's the bad Jedi, right? They're actually more powerful than a normal Jedi, aren't they? They're meant to be like super powerful because there's only one of them.
1: It's not what Yoda says.
0: He says the dark side isn't stronger.
1: But he doesn't say
0: that the Sith aren't more powerful, does he?
1: uh, Yeah, they're talking about the sides of the Force. Luke says, Is the the dark side of the Force stronger? And Yoda says, No! Yeah, he says, No! Uh, And so, No! (laughs) Something, (laughs) something, something, something. Yeah, but they were
0: sort of like a. Yeah. It was a bit ambiguous nope. as to Easier, what it means. More seductive. Yes, yes. But Pretty given serious. that there's only <laughs> there's only one bad Jedi, uh, Sith. Sorry, isn't there? That's two. right, isn't it? Two. Two. Well, so, but there's the yeah. Okay, but there's yeah. yeah. Okay, so there's two. Given there's only two, they would have to be more powerful than the because there seems to be infinite number of Jedi's.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: But and anyway, that's why Darth Vader can do
1: but- that. But, but isn't there There's. I'm trying to think of there's stuff in the other I, you shouldn't I shouldn't even think about the prequels because uh, no the,
0: they're not canon just ignore right. them
1: but I suppose there aren't other times where Darth Vader's shot at because uh, yeah he can just yeah. uh, something tells me we're slightly off on a little tangent here <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're actually in the wrap up part of the show um, um, Right. so at tattoo, so yeah Yeah, so that's me done. What about you? Are you on the internet?
0: Yeah, johnconway.co. On Twitter, I'm at the John Conway. I'm also on Facebook. Also the John Conway. And, um, oh, Patreon, Patreon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you want to support us or support the show, you can go to our Patreon pages. Um, I'm patreon.com forward slash John Conway. And you are patreon.com forward slash
1: tetzoo. Tetzoo. Thank you to my patrons. I love you. Love you all. Mm. But not in that way. Not in that way. We should <laughs> also mention our affiliates, uh, our friends, uh, who include um, uh, Ethan Kosak, Black Mud Puppy, who runs the Tetzoo comic. Comic.tetzoo.com. And also, thank you to our friends, John Tamel, Alberta Claw, Rebecca Groom, Gareth Monger, who run the Adventure Time Style Tetsu Time webcomic, which is very funny. Have you seen the new one with the axolotl? Which Time.tetsu.com. Weird... Thank you. Time... There's, a, there's one with an axolotl. So it's a crossover between, it stars Ethan Kosak. And it's, Axel a it's a crossover. Bit. Oh, it's a crossover. Oh dear, the number of crossovers. <laughs> it's like that time when when Archie and Veronica met the Ninja Turtles with The Simpsons. And, uh, <clears throat> and funny enough, Veronica does actually star in an episode of The Simpsons. She's on the front of a comic with Itchy from Itchy and Scratchy. Tangent. It's Tangent. It's my mind. Your mind. Um... um What else do I need to talk about? I think that might be it. Yeah, okay. Until next time.
0: Right.